chapter 6 this morning. As you're turning there, I wonder if you have ever heard the phrase, come to Jesus moment. Okay, maybe you've experienced the phrase. Maybe there has been something in your life that, that maybe someone came to you and said, hey, uh, Brian, we need to have a come to Jesus moment. Okay, uh, that, that's happened to me lots of times, actually. Uh, people talk about having difficult words and difficult conversations that are true and honest, but oftentimes tough. And they describe that as a coming to Jesus moment. It, it's ironic today at least, because in our passage, Jesus has some tough words, and those who are with him have a come-to-Jesus moment, quite literally. Um, there's no more of a come-to-Jesus moment than right here in John 6, where we see some tough but honest and important words. And so our goal together is to have a come-to-Jesus moment in John 6. Now, if you remember, as we've been marching through John 6, the Gospel of John is all about John writing, giving evidence for why Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by knowing that, we would then respond by having faith in him, that we would believe in Jesus and be saved and be rescued and redeemed. It's the whole purpose of why John has written his gospel, his good news of the account of Jesus's life. And we've been marching through John chapter 6. And, and if you remember, that's the beginning where Jesus fed the 5,000 and then his disciples get on the boat and Jesus meets them in the middle of the storm and he helps them get to the other side. And then he's teaching in Capernaum and there's all this really kind of difficult sayings that Jesus has been going through. And this morning we see the end of where that is going. But before we get too deep in, let us remind one another of our verse of the series, the verse that we're memorizing as a church together that's going to help us as we study the Gospel of John this fall. It's John 6:40. Let's say it together. It should be on the screens together. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that whether we find Jesus' words easy or hard to listen to, whether we find ourselves frustrated or with faith, we pray that we would see that Jesus alone has eternal life and that we would go to him. So Father, work by your word and by your spirit in our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we only have 11 verses to go through today, which seems like a really short amount considering what we normally go through. But I still want to give you a roadmap of where we're going today. So if, if you get nothing else out of what happens this morning, this is what we want you to walk away with as you go into your workplace this week. Here it is. Here's the big idea. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So go to him in faith and in frustration. Here it is again. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. 
So go to him in faith and in frustration. And so we're going to look at John 6, 60 through 71, kind of in three different parts. We're going to look at these hard sayings of Jesus in part one. We're going to look at a picture of the Father's merciful love in part two. And then we're going to look at the words of eternal life in part three. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 60 with me. I'm going to read verses 60 to 63, and we're going to jump in there. When many of his disciples heard it, meaning heard, heard what Jesus had been saying, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, it's not going to do us any good to jump into the text without remembering the context. Okay, so... Uh, just earlier in chapter 6, Jesus has been saying this, beginning in verse 55. He says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I believe because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus had just finished teaching uh, about faith in him. And he used this graphic metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We, we saw last week uh, how Jesus was speaking about looking to him and placing our faith in him for salvation when he's using the language of eating flesh and drinking blood. Uh, I'm actually just going to pause for a second. You may not even know this, but today is Reformation Sunday, which means that we are remembering the, the Reformation movement that started uh, by Martin Luther in the 1500s about salvation being by faith alone. And if you read about that historically, it actually included issues about what John meant in John 6 about, or what Jesus meant in John 6 about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, all that to say is, is we remember today that salvation is by faith. It is the work of God. And, and we're going to see that very clearly in our passage this morning. So our passage is the response of what Jesus' teaching has been in John 6. So, so there's now kind of a new group of people that's been described in this passage. It started with the crowd with the 5,000 men, which were probably about 20,000 people, who were fed by the miracle of Jesus. And then the crowd morphed into those who were then with the fishing boats, and they went looking for Jesus on the next day. And then Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and so there's those who are just in the synagogue that day, uh, when we see the phrase, the Jews, in Go John's gospel, it's a reference not to just anyone who's Jewish, but in particular, scribes and Pharisees who, who were the, the, the standard of what it meant to, to follow God. And so, so we see that there's these groups. And now, 
Uh, there's uh, now we see that this crowd has morphed into into people who are around him, have been following him. The description here is called the disciples, uh, which is different from the twelve, and we'll see why that is here in a little bit. So remember, the twelve disciples are with Jesus. They were in the boat headed to Capernaum. Uh, they were in the storm. Jesus met them a few miles off ashore and and got them safely to the other side. So in verse 60, we see a group described as his disciples, but it's not the 12. And we know this because later in our passage, in verse 67, Jesus speaks specifically to the 12. So this group of people are people who were understood to be following Jesus. This group of disciples aren't, uh, just aren't the religious leaders opposing Jesus, but those who thought that they were following him. And yet, they couldn't stand the words that Jesus said in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to this? And so these disciples described here are actually people who are not taking Jesus' words. They're saying, this is too much for us. We can't handle this. This is not for us. Literally, they are not remaining in his words. They find his teaching to be hard. They wonder who could accept it. They're finding Jesus' teaching harsh and offensive. They find his words intolerable and, and ridiculous. And I think it's worth saying this morning that, brothers and sisters, Jesus says hard things that we can trust. Jesus says hard things that we can trust. In fact, if Jesus never says something that rubs you the wrong way, if Jesus never says something that we need to adjust in our lives, then it's not Jesus we're following, but something that we've twisted to fit what we want. Whenever we read something in the Bible and it disagrees with a belief that we might hold, even if we've held that belief for a long time, because God's word is always right, then we need to do a heart check and we need to be humble and be willing to adjust our understanding and therefore even adjust our lives. In fact, that, that's how biblical change happens. That's how we grow as a Christian. See, too often we think that the Christian life looks like we just stop doing things. Oh, if I'm angry, I just stop being angry. Uh, but the reality is, is, is that, yes, we do stop doing things that are sinful, but, but the Bible actually calls us to do a whole lot more than that. Uh, the Bible tells us to put off our old selves. Uh, we are called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and then put on our new selves to walk in righteousness as Christ has commanded us. So really, biblical change is not a stopping of doing something. It is being guided by God's word and spirit and replacing sinful habits with what honors the Lord. And so uh, we replace our sinful behavior by renewing our minds in the spirit, by the truth of God, and we replace our sinful with the righteous. And this matters in our passage because these disciples of Jesus were grumbling at the hard saying of Jesus. And what they weren't doing is, is they were not checking their hearts for where they needed to adjust. Instead, they were upset with what Jesus says. 
as if he was somehow in the wrong. Who can listen to these things? They're asking. Therefore, they thought that they couldn't even listen to Jesus' hard sayings. And so they ultimately rejected Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is a reality in our lives where we can feel a certain way about something that we hear, and we really feel that way. But just because we feel it doesn't mean we have the right perspective. We need to have a biblical perspective. Every single thing the Bible says, we don't want to reject. We don't want to ignore. We actually want to embrace. We can trust every hard saying Jesus says. In fact, that's actually what real Christians do. We accept the hard words of God so much that we even accept this one where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. How interesting that we don't see this group of disciples going to Jesus with their frustrations. Right In verse 61, it says, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Okay, that tells us that they were grumbling among themselves. Even when we grumble among ourselves, it's not secret to God. Our hearts are not secret to God. How sad in our passage that they didn't go to Jesus with their concern. Jesus had to go to them, and he knew what was going on inside their hearts. In fact, this isn't even the first hard saying that Jesus has had. He's had a lot of hard sayings, right? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Boy, this is why they're upset in the first place. That's a hard saying of Jesus. Now remember from last week, we saw how that is. Jesus is giving a metaphor to not asking to take a bite out of his arm. He's talking about placing our faith in Jesus. But Jesus has, has uh, more hard sayings, right? He says in verse 62, what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Man, that's another hard saying of Jesus. So remember, in verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. And now he's asking them, well, what's your reaction going to be if you see me ascend back to where I was beforehand, back up in heaven? If they found Jesus' authority and his claims and his language offensive, what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross as, as the method and path for his way of ascending to the place to where he was before? The, the cross is a supreme scandal. Right? No, no matter how offensive for Jesus to say to eat his flesh and drink his blood might be, how much more offensive is the crucifixion of the Messiah, the one sent from heaven? And then Jesus doesn't stop there. Then another hard saying that Jesus gives is in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So salvation demands a response of us, of us placing our faith in Jesus. But salvation has never been initiated by us, only by God. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we will ourselves to be saved. It's the Spirit of God who gives life. 
And so we have to have humble hearts when we approach Jesus, not arrogant hearts. Otherwise, we will not recognize the life-giving words that Jesus has. If the flesh does not give life, what does? Well, one of the clearest characteristics of the Spirit in the Old Testament is one that gives life. Think of our scripture reading this morning where, where God and Ezekiel are, are hanging out and, and God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, only you know. And what does God do? He breathes life onto them. And they are, these dead, bleached bones come alive. And the result is that they know who the Lord is. And so what we see is that the Spirit, one of the the main characteristics of the Spirit is that the Spirit gives life. That's also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the suffering Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews and foolish talk to everyone else apart from God's Spirit at work in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So go to him in faith and in your frustrations. Let's keep going in what John writes, continuing in verse 64 through verse 66. Here's what it says. But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know, when I was in college, we didn't just buy everything online. There were these things called bookstores. And, and this is before the iPhone, too, okay? And, and there was this, at, at this bookstore, there was a new release for uh, one of the Harry Potter books. I don't even know which one it was. At the time, I wasn't into it at all. I couldn't tell you which book was being released. I couldn't, even t- I couldn't tell you anything about it. But I wanted to join the crowd for the fun. So I went with some college friends to this bookstore and like lines wrapped around the building. You see these adults in like black capes, right? Like I saw like these adults with a broom between their legs running around and I'm just, I'm just like laughing at them, okay? Uh, so so I, it, it was ridiculous. And I realized that I was with the crowd, but I was only watching the crowd. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I stood in line for someone else. I didn't even, I don't even know what book it was that was being released at the time. In verse 64, in our passage, there's people who hung around Jesus. They were part of the crowd, but they didn't actually believe and trust in Jesus. They were were there for some other reason, but but, but they weren't there for Jesus. Uh, This is not known to us, but it's known by God. In fact, it was known by Jesus from the beginning. Some of these people had been hanging around Jesus for quite a while. Whenever they heard Jesus was in town, they'd go out and they'd see him. You know, hopefully they'd see a miracle. 
there can be people who hang around the people of God, maybe even grew up going to church. But we know that simply attending church does not make someone a Christian. Association is not belief. Hanging out with the crowd is not saving faith. Knowledge of facts alone is not belief. Well, what is belief? If Jesus says he knew from the beginning that some did not believe. What is belief then? It's not merely wanting to be associated with Jesus. It's not wanting to use Jesus for something else that you want. No, it's an understanding that Jesus, the one sent from heaven, has come to earth to rescue by giving himself on the cross to die in our place and on the third day being raised to life. Jesus is the one who's greater than any prophet, greater than Moses. He is the Holy One of God. And then to believe includes a dependence or a trust that's similar to a, a child to a parent or even a, a, a dog to its owner or a, a, a creature to its creator. That's what we're called to have towards Jesus, both an understanding of who he is and then a dependence and a trust upon him. Because we know that outward expressions can look good, but God looks at the heart. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in verses 64 and 65? Jesus is connecting belief, our coming to Jesus, with what the Father grants. The mission of the kingdom is for people to come to Jesus. It's the plan of the Father. It isn't a secondary plan. It isn't the thing on the back burner. It is the mission of God. Who knows if it is the entire chain of events or if it's the hard sayings or what exactly broke the straw on the camel's back. But notice their response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Well, what happened? Did Jesus mess up? Did he go too far? Well, if we believe that Jesus didn't mess up because he is the perfect son of God, then might we be able to say, even as we assess our own ministry here at Friendship and beyond, that when people walk away, or when people decide that they no longer want to follow Jesus, it isn't always because we messed up. Ministry evaluations cannot be primarily evaluated by the number of baptisms that happened in that year, because otherwise we would have to say that Jesus messed up here. No, as a side, as we think about evaluating metrics for the health of a church, oftentimes churches want to think of themselves as an ABC church, right? The three things they want to care about is attendance, how good the building looks, and how much cash they have in the bank. But might I offer... Uh, 
additional metrics that we think about, that when we think about what does it mean as we evaluate ministry that's going on, more than just an ABC church, we really want to be a DEF church. Okay, we want to be about discipleship and evangelism and fellowship. And, and what's going on there is going to be really healthy metrics for what's going on within a church. And, and so we need to be asking ourselves, what is happening with Jesus if after he says these hard things, they don't want to walk with him anymore? Well, Jesus is clarifying what discipleship to him looks like. And that matters. Brothers and sisters, we need, to we need to see the reality that unchecked and unresolved frustrations in our hearts often lead to abandonment. Unchecked and unresolved frustrations often lead to abandonment. My, my, my heart breaks for people who walk away from Jesus. You know, probably one of the uh, most heartbreaking ones that, that I've ever witnessed um, was a guy named Sheldon. We were living in Canada, and I was uh, pastoring a church up in Canada. And Sheldon is a guy who had no business coming in contact with me as a pastor. We, we were hosting an international Thanksgiving dinner for, for any international students in Canada who didn't have a place to go for Canadian Thanksgiving. And so, so we, we were hosting it, and every year the, the, the number of international students from, from the university doubled. Every year it just kept doubling. And, and Sheldon didn't even go to one of the Thanksgiving meals, but he had a roommate who went to a Thanksgiving meal and heard the gospel, and his roommate didn't become a Christian at all. His, his roommate actually rejected the gospel, but told Sheldon uh, about this church group. And so Sheldon comes to us, um, and, and uh, just out of hearing that, that we offer language help and English help for, uh, for international students, and Sheldon and I begin a relationship. We, we start being friends. We start hanging out. I share the gospel with him. He becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christian, y'all. Like, it's amazing. And, and we baptize him. He joins the church. It's incredible. And then he started dating this young lady who is from the same village in China as him, and her family was really, really wealthy. And there was a lot of pressure on him to marry her because of what that would mean in his culture and for his family. And so uh, uh, she had said that she was a Buddhist. And she said that he had no business being a Christian if he wanted to marry her. And so his parents asked him to walk away from Christianity. And he said he wouldn't do it. And eventually, his girlfriend, who he had been dating for, for quite some time, eventually, she said, um, you have to choose either me or Christianity. And so I remember Sheldon meeting me for coffee that day. And he said, well, Brian, maybe, maybe I could just be a secret Christian. Maybe I can tell her that I've abandoned Jesus, but, but, but in my heart I haven't. He, he, was trying, he was trying to work out how do I keep my relationship and, and keep Jesus. I, I said, Sheldon, man, you, you can't just be a secret Christian. 
No, our Christianity is something that has to be lived out. And so he said, I'm so sorry, Brian. This is the last time we're going to see each other. And he walked away. So my heart breaks for those who walk away from Jesus. It's not an easy thing. It's crushing to witness that. Because most of the time it, it deals with sadness and brokenness that people walk away. It's, it's heart crushing. And, but when we let our emotions go unchecked, whether they're based on reality or not, when we have unresolved frustration, and his frustration was he would, he would lose his social status at his, in his home village, his family would disown him. There were a lot of pressures going on for him. But when we have unresolved frustration as these people in our passage who said, this is a hard saying, who could listen to it, they say. It too often becomes too much and people walk away. That's actually why we want to keep a short account with God and, and others within the body. See, the longer we live in unrepentant sin, the easier it is to just walk away because uh, we, we've stopped filtering our lives with God's word. We want to resolve frustrations quickly with one another, not just because our church covenant says so that, that we should do, but because it actually helps maintain unity. But when we don't, it's just so much easier to walk away. And so when we find ourselves frustrated with God, we should go to God. In fact, actually one example of of giving our frustrations to God is, is the book of Psalms. Right? We read again and again, How long, O oh Lord? Because David is taking his heart to God and he, he's struggling with how that works out. But the conclusion that David comes to again and again and again in the Psalms and the conclusion that we're going to see in our passage today is that in our pain, we can take our frustrations to God because he cares for us. I think it's helpful to note uh, that unbelief did not surprise Jesus. He knew from the beginning not only who did not believe, but also the supreme example of unbelief of the one who would betray Jesus. Jesus already knew it. He, he, it didn't surprise him. Brothers and sisters, our doubts do not surprise or scare Jesus. Your frustrations in life and what you are experiencing do not surprise or scare Jesus. And so if our doubts don't surprise Jesus, we can take them to him. We can cast them upon him. We can cry out to him. We can trust him with it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So go to him in faith and in frustration. Let's see the rest of the passage of how it turns out. Let's look again at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Right? There's certainly levels of people around you, right? Jesus had a core team. He had 12 people around him. This core team knew what was happening better than anyone else who was just on the edge of the crowd, uh, more so than anyone who just kind of showed up casually. And so Jesus turned to his core team who should have known the vision best and understood what it was at stake the most, and he gives them an out. Can you imagine a time if Jesus were to look at you and ask in a moment of difficulty and in a moment of questioning, and he forces you to make a decision, right? The amount of underarm sweat that comes when Jesus asks, do you want out too, has got to be big. I put this on the same level as Jesus asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Right, to even have Jesus ask that question is heartbreaking. But watershed moments like this are important as we count the cost of following Jesus. There are forks in the road, and we have to choose which direction we're going to go. Jesus, at some point, is asking all of us the same question. Do you want to go away also? What are the costs that we think about as we consider following and continuing to follow Jesus? Well, Peter, who speaks for the twelve, has counted the cost. He knows what's at stake. He sees the vision. We all have moments in our lives that are defining for us things that bring clarity to what we are doing and where we are going and what we value. For me, one of those times was when I was in college. I spent my energies, my free time, my money, my parents' money, my tuition, all pursuing music. I poured myself into the music world and when I looked around at the people I was supposed to aspire to be like, I looked at them, and I looked at their lives, and I realized I just didn't want to be like them at all. I loved music, but I didn't love who I was being when I was playing music. And so in maybe a single moment of clarity, later affirmed by others in my life, I decided, I remember the day when I decided I am not going to continue to pursue music. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to prepare for gospel ministry. This passage is one of those watershed, clarifying moments that force us to go in one direction or another. Maybe you are a 90s baby like me. Uh, and Shel Silverstein, Silverstein comes to mind, right, where, where it's described like this, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, right? In a watershed moment, Peter knew which path to take. He did not say that what Jesus said was easy. Peter didn't say following Jesus would be easy. In fact, we know 
that it becomes really difficult for Peter soon after this. But in this moment, Peter gets it. Peter, recognizing what is unique about Jesus that gives clarity to everything else. You guys ever seen those, those videos? Those, uh, what are those called? Instagram reels? They're, they're short, but they hook you. You ever seen one of those videos of, of, of a kid who has really, really bad eyesight, and he wears glasses for the first time, and he lays eyes on his mom? <laughs> like, like, how do you not cry at that? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like that kind of clarity that Peter is seeing right here, okay? Peter knows what's at stake. He knows what is going to happen. And, and he, he, what is unique about Jesus gives clarity to everything else that Peter is, is doing. Look what he says in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's something unique about Jesus that no other prophet, no other religious leader can say. Jesus has the words of eternal life. He doesn't just have kind words or compassionate words. He has the words of eternal life. There is no other source for life. We see that Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's not just a good man. He's not just a moral man. Jesus isn't just a wise man. Jesus has come down from heaven. He is the Son of God. He is eternal and holy and righteous. He is God in the flesh. And so Peter's conclusion, there's no other place to go. If Jesus is God in the flesh, if he is the Holy One of God, if Jesus has the words of eternal life, then there is no other place to go. There's no one else to which to go. Brothers and sisters, we need to see this morning that it is not easy, it is costly to follow Jesus, but it is worth it. In your pain, in your heartache, in your brokenness, Jesus is worth following. It isn't easy. It's going to cost you your life. You can't follow Jesus on Sunday morning and ignore him the other days of the week. It's going to cost you your life. You can't say, hey, Jesus, you can have a control over this part of my life, but these areas belong to me. You can't touch them. That's not, what it, that's not how it works. No, following Jesus is costly. It isn't easy. Jesus says, narrow is the gate and wide is the road to destruction. It isn't easy. It is costly. But Jesus is worth it. Even when areas of your life are imploding, family, relationships, jobs, Jesus is worth following. Only Jesus is the Holy One of God who freely gives eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been invited by a friend and you're like, wow, this guy's really hitting it on me hard this morning. Well, friend, we are so glad you're here. We actually think it's not by accident that you're here. And we think that there's no better place for you to be 
than with God's people on a Sunday morning singing praises to him and hearing from God, from his word. I wonder if you think, well, my life is already roses. Nothing's hard. Nothing's wrong. Why would I need Jesus? If that's you this morning, friend, hear that there is a day coming when our creator who created the universe and everything in it will ask us if we have acknowledged him and trusted him and followed him with our lives or with if we have ignored him and rejected him as our king. And we will have to give an account for that day. And the king of the universe, the God of all creation, promises that all who come to Jesus in faith will not be turned away, will not be cast out, Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not sure what to think about Jesus. Well, you would probably be in the category that we just saw where many people turned back and no longer walked with him. But friends, notice what the people who know Jesus best, the, his 12 disciples, notice what they say about him. No, notice their response. Jesus gives them an out. He says, do you want to go away also? And their response is, where else are we going to go? There is no other place. So friend, if, if you are not a Christian here today, would you think about the words that Peter has said? Would you ask yourself, what makes Jesus so incredible that his disciples, these 12, his closest don't go anywhere. In fact, what we see in history is that they are so committed to Jesus ultimately that they all die just for saying that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus is worth following. And so if you want to talk more about that, come find me afterward. I'd love to talk about why Jesus is worth following. What we can see, though, is that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And so we should go to him in faith and in frustration because he is the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard and easy to think about turning away. It's hard because we recognize who you are. God in the flesh who came to rescue and redeem. And yet, in our frustrations, in these hard sayings of Jesus, it's easy to wonder if we should stay. Oh, Father, would you help us to be people who find great joy in believing that you would be at work in our lives in such a way that we would respond like Peter and the Twelve, where we would say, where else will we go? There's no other place we should go. Oh, Father, do that good work in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Would you stand and we're going to close with all I have is Christ.